Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 24th of February, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, you seem a bit out of breath. Uh, just in time delivery today, but we made it. Uh, so where are we starting then? Well, I think we better start with the really important news, and uh, there's only one place to go for that, and that is the BBC. So let's have a look at this uh, headline. It couldn't be clearer. The uh, lead singer of Shawadiwadi, you've got to be old enough to remember this group, which I don't believe uh, scored too highly uh, on the pop scene, but apparently Dave Bartram, the lead singer of Shawadiwadi, has advised people to get a vaccination after his brutal experience with COVID-19. Now, this is a genuine BBC headline. Um, it comes from uh, a section of an article which we're going to cover later in the news. But I think we've now got to the stage, Mike, where the BBC is is just not credible as, as a national or international news agency. So we'll have a look at that in more detail in a minute. Uh, in the meantime, of course, we mentioned on Monday that uh, Boris would be giving a briefing uh, in the afternoon. Uh, that uh, appeared. And uh, one of the key features of that, of course, was the question of uh, vaccine passports. Uh, so will there be vaccine passports? Will there not be vaccine passports? It's still being discussed, apparently. But of course, we all know that they're coming. And surely what he has told us that we should get vaccinated. So it's, it's only logical these passports are coming, Mike. OK, so let's uh, let's look at the document. This is it. COVID-19 response, spring 2021. Uh, and when they're talking about uh, vaccine passports, they don't use the term passport. They call them COVID status certification. So they say COVID status certification involves using testing or vaccination data to confirm in different settings that people have a lower risk of transmitting transmitting COVID-19 to others. Um, so they're trying to sort of pretend that there's not going to be any mandatory vaccination going on here uh, because uh, testing will be allowed. Uh, the government will review whether COVID status certification could play a role in reopening our economy, reducing restrictions on social contact and improving safety. This will include assessing to what extent certification would be effective in reducing risk and the potential uses to enable access to settings or a relaxation of COVID secure mitigations. Uh, the government will also consider the ethical equalities, privacy, legal and operational aspects of this approach and what limits, if any, should be placed uh, on organisations using certification. Um, so uh, they go on to say it will draw on external advice uh, to develop recommendations that take into account any social and economic impacts and implications for disproportionality impacted groups and individuals' privacy and security. So, um, well, who do you think, Brian, is going to be uh, behind uh, making this assessment and this analysis? Well, whoever it is, Mike, they're going to be independent, they're going to be trustworthy, and they're going to have been selected for their upstanding moral code, I would imagine. Uh, they're going to be absolutely none of those things, because here they are. It is going to be the government surveillance network uh, via the Cabinet Office. Of course, Simon Case, the uh, lead civil servant in charge of that, he's the head of the British Civil Service, and sitting on his shoulder is uh, Michael Gove. Um, so uh, that's who's going to be making sure that we uh, are all uh, have passports and that the data is secure and that the data is genuine as well. Uh, now, we've been warning about uh, vaccination passports. I think the first time we did this was, uh, we talked about this was 
the 27th of May last year. Um, this is probably what we're going to end up with, this type of format. Uh, it'll be a smartphone app uh, with some kind of QR code on it and your status, whether it be green, amber or some other kind of uh, red. Obviously, if you've, uh, uh, if you've been, had a positive test or you haven't been uh, vaccinated and, uh, and pending, if you uh, are of indeterminate status. So, Alex, uh, I'm sure you feel comfortable about the fact that uh, the Cabinet Office uh, will be in charge of this whole exercise. Well, not exactly, Mike. And I was just sitting there listening to you saying that Michael Gove sitteth upon the shoulder of Sir Simon Case. I hope that he has a devil sitting on his other shoulder for balance. Uh, no, this, the Cabinet Office is about three times, four times the size of what it was when I was a civil servant just a decade or more ago. Uh, in fact, slightly over a decade now. But it's clearly become the centre of intelligence operations for the British government and has started trumpeting its links to Israel, which has a similar joined up uh, over unified form of government, actually. So uh, not at all encouraged, particularly as I see in the chat box here that Galicia, the region of northwestern Spain, is starting to talk about fining people 60,000 euros if they're not vaccinated. OK, well, uh, the, on a slightly more positive note, the petition uh, that we showed on this programme a couple of uh, days ago, a few days ago, uh, which is calling for the government not to implement immunity passports, vaccine passports, is now up to, I think, 180 or 190,000 signatures on it, so well over the 100,000 threshold, which is supposed to trigger a parliamentary debate. Of course, there are no parliamentary debates anymore, so so it's not likely to uh, to achieve that as such. But nonetheless, uh, it's it's good that people are making their feelings absolutely clear on this. Uh, and then in the meantime, uh, the question of uh, whether vaccination will be mandatory or not, well, maybe we get a hint uh, from uh, Chris Whitty, uh, who was, uh, I think this was also on Monday, he was saying, uh, my view is clearly for medical staff where I'm subject to the same code, it's a professional responsibility for doctors to do things which help protect their patients. Uh, and I expect that to be a professional responsibility for all other health and social care staff as well. So he's talking about vaccines here. He's talking about it being a professional responsibility uh, to have one, uh, whether you like it or not. Uh, and many people in the mainstream media suggesting that uh, this is Chris Whitty calling for this so-called term jabs for jobs. Um, so if you want to work in the health service, or you want to work in the care sector, uh, you absolutely would be required to have one. But he's not paying the slightest bit of attention, Mike, to any professional that is speaking out, warning about the dangers of vaccine or indeed warning about the dangers of the wider lockdown. And we're going to hear a little bit, of, little bit more about that later in the news. Um, and the question then is, uh, will the lockdown be lifted? Uh, what will be the circumstances of it? Well, maybe we get uh, more of a clue that uh, things aren't going to go quite as people hope uh, this summer because uh, the Financial Times tweeting this out this morning, uh, or yesterday, sorry, uh, coronavirus latest uh, mutation cuts Pfizer vaccine protection to one third study shows. Um, so that's not looking so great. Um, so where does that take us? Uh, Alex, let's uh, head to the continent then. And uh, well, the conversation here headlining COVID, why are Swedish towns banning masks? There isn't that much more to this other than that people should go and find that story and read it. Um, it's rather tersely worded in the original underlying Swedish reports, but it turns out that one municipality in uh, the southwest of Sweden 
told a school teacher, no, you must take the mask off. Not we, we don't mandate it, but you must take it off because there's evidence that it's harmful, medical evidence that it's harmful if wrongly used, uh, somewhat like the Danish study next door. And uh, the covering piece uh, also uh, touches upon the fact that another municipality in the same sort of well-to-do part of, of Sweden in the southwest in the in the province of Halland said the same actually that librarians mustn't wear masks. Uh, this is news from January actually but it's worth going in this segment now to show that Sweden is it's not all one-way traffic. Sweden continues at local level to be skeptical at least in some corners of the country uh, about the uh, uh, should we say the the, uh, the mind bug that has affected much of the rest of the world with regard to the sudden volt fast about the use of masks. Let's flit down under uh, the New Zealand Herald reports that an Australian lady has been in detention in isolation for coming up to a month now uh, and she is in fact a qualified veterinarian nurse, veterinary nurse, so nurse for animals. Um, she is uh, reportedly perfectly willing to take the PCR test or at least the COVID test that, uh, that, that New Zealand mandates, I, I believe that's still PCR, uh, if she is given the opportunity to make an informed choice. Uh, so she's obviously, so we say, halfway to being qualified as a doctor uh, and perfectly well understands what's going on uh, and would be prepared to take it. But New Zealand has shut her up for a month and said, no, there's no information forthcoming. Take. Uh, rather an indicative data point, I think. Uh, yes. Perhaps we should um, take the opportunity to remind people that it's the Pfizer chief executive officer that's a trained veterinarian. So um, she shouldn't have any worries about her qualification. She's ideally qualified to talk. Absolutely. Uh, that takes us on to uh, this one, Alex. Uh, whistleblower video footage of forced COVID vaccines in German nursing home goes public. Uh, this is from Medical Kidnap. This is a further follow-up as to what the uh, extra-parliamentary German committee uh, of inquiry led by Dr. Rainer Fumich is, is doing. Uh, we're not going to show a video footage here, but we have still from it. People can find the Medical Kidnap article and easily find the embedded video. Uh, it's not particularly shall we say, uh, harrowing to watch unless you use your imagination. It's not close-ups of people screaming or anything, but the still here shows that people with dementia in German care homes are to some extent being held down. And in some of this footage, uh, there's two or three people at a time. Uh, and you can see writhing limbs and resistance uh, from those in the recumbent position. So this is the level of inoculation uh, that's now going on. I don't know the legal ins and outs of how court-appointed guardians would uh, give proxy consent for people with dementia in the German system, uh, but it's not looking good. Uh, this is the country that invented T4. Let's uh, re remind ourselves again. Next door uh, in Austria, actually. Yes, go on. Yes, go on. Uh, next door in Austria. I don't have a town uh, or school name for this, but just to lead it in, uh, this has been tweeted out by uh, Resistance Now on Twitter with the handle Free Now Humanity, reporting that a 12-year-old Austrian boy was visited at school. This means, of course, that someone at school called the police on him and was harassed by the local police because unlike the other 23 in his class, he refused the test. And that clip, again, I have a still from. It's quite clearly spoken in German with German subtitles. And uh, I freezed this frame where the policist says, you're the only one in the class who has a problem with being tested. That looks pretty stupid. What's your problem? So he gets badgered for at least a minute of this footage of so it's being told, what's your problem? What's your objection? Just take the thing. That's the, that's the role that the Austrian police have now uh, arrogated to themselves.
uh, which is which is clearly bullying children, threatening and bullying children is what we're talking about here. You've mentioned the T4 programme. Uh, probably uh, many people who watch and listen to UK Column will not know what that is. We're going to encourage people to go and research. T T4 relates to a Nazi programme to remove people who are mentally or physically disabled. And the T4 comes from Tiergrasse Strat. Uh, research it, see the background to it, see what happened prior to the Second World War and consider what we are now watching unfold in the United Kingdom and other places in uh, Western Europe. Um, so we got an email? We did get an email. Uh, this one fits in particularly well with your segment, uh, Alex, because the email to us was about um, face masks and testing for children. Uh, could the UK column team please consider dedicating some time to helping parents to navigate this latest insane decision on making children wear face masks and have regular lateral flow swab tests just to be allowed a basic right to go to school? We wrote to our school around the time the North West schools had the military assisting with testing and we put on record that we didn't consent should that same testing come to the North East. My children took part in tutor sessions today with their teachers. One teacher was correct when she said that testing wasn't mandatory and it was optional. What tipped my child was that the majority of their peers on the call replied that testing should be mandatory and feelings were strong. And I want people to really uh, understand what's coming through here, that the child is now um, suffering from peer pressure. Uh, and was uh, relating that to their parent. That set off a string of text messages from my child to me whilst they were on the class call pleading with me to let them take the test to avoid being bullied. So we come back to Chris Whitty and professionals. We have professionals here now implementing a policy which is clearly um, putting the children under stress, causing anxiety. This is against child safeguarding rules, um, but of course, um, as far as COVID's concerned, all of that has gone out the window. So utter lies at the moment from the British government. Uh, let's carry on through. Uh, my youngest is mildly autistic and exempt from wearing a face mask as they panicked about not being able to breathe properly when they put one on. Sadly, they are so stressed about being seen as different and how they will be treated by their peers that they have insisted they will not uh, uh, that they've insisted they will not wear a face mask. Sorry, that there's a bit of confusion in there, but that is as given to me. Both children, I think, both children have said that they don't want me to, to make a fuss with school. So the minimum out of this is clear pressure on the child and that pressure come back into the family about the rules being set mm -hmm. in schools. But I wanted to highlight that this week in particular, we've had a number of telephone conversations with trained psychologists and psychotherapists, counselors, and indeed uh, some psychiatrists who are there in the background, but not communicating directly. And what they're saying is that professionals in these fields are increasingly concerned about the damage of lockdown on the mental health of children and young people, uh, that masks, social distancing and isolation are causing depression, anxiety and stress amongst children and young people. And the government itself, the Department of Education and local authority COVID rules are recognised as being harmful under their own child safe, safeguarding guidelines, yet the rules are still being implemented and enforced. 
Alex, I'll just throw this back at you. To, to my mind, we've got uh, orchestrated breakdown that apparently now one part of government doesn't know what the other, the other government sorry, what the other part of the government is doing. We don't know what the rules are, or if we have rules, those can be thrown out willy-nilly um, if the subject is COVID-19. This is breakdown of the British government and civil service. And effectively, it's, it's the breakdown of law and order in this country. Otherwise known as the loss of the rule of law, uh, because what we now see is that it's a clique within a clique within a clique. Uh, dictating policy and the rest of the government, the ordinary civil servant flunkies, have to take their um, leading note uh, every now and again from the, the mind melders, as it were. And this is happening in concentrated form in Scotland, as we shall see later in the news. Uh, but for those who are wondering how it's come to this, well, it starts with the bland and innocuous seeming phrase, social acceptance, as has been pointed out in our chat box by one of our long-term supporters. Uh, when SAGE, the government's uh, committee to work out how to get us all uh, uh, following science, as it were, um, talked about social acceptance. This is the result. It actually means children with depression and children facing bullying from their peers and from adults, as we saw from Austria. Yeah. Um, well, of course, uh, part of the uh, scheme for getting us out of lockdown involves education. And uh, so what is the uh, recovery plan from the government? Uh, so they say that following the announcement of the roadmap yesterday, which laid out a cautious easing of restrictions, the government has today, Wednesday, the 24th of February, announced further elements of the recovery support package so children and young people can catch up on missed learning and development due to the pandemic. Um, so this will be supported by a new £700 million package, but when you actually go and look at the details, you find, as the government often does, money which has already been announced. Um, the average primary school is going to receive £6,000 extra. The average secondary school, £22,000 extra. Uh, what's that for? Well, of course, they're going to run summer schools. Everybody will have seen the headlines. So your education, your mental health has been damaged uh, over the last 12 months. And so they're going to uh, make sure you don't get a holiday either because you are uh, you're going to have to go to summer school to make up for it. Uh, what did Boris have to say, as if we care? Uh, he said this extensive programme of catch-up funding will equip teachers and give children the opportunities they deserve to learn and fulfil their potential. Um, I don't really know what to say to that, to be honest. Well, uh, you can't you can't say that Boris Johnson is an idiot. I think he I think he's a fool in as much as he's being played by immensely powerful people. But clearly, Boris Johnson is not running the country. He is simply he's simply en enacting an agenda that he's been given. So, really, what we need to be doing is digging to see who is actually controlling Boris Johnson. My personal opinion, but I don't think I'm far off the mark. Um, Alex, uh, where does that take us? This is John Cullen. David Scott and I, a couple of months ago, appeared on John Cullen's channel. He's a very good data cruncher with a good deal of understanding of logic and following the evidence. His YouTube channel is called John E. Hoover, in memory of that American great. And people should look up the video Crash Course in Root Cause Analysis with John Cullen. Uh, and at this point, he is uh, picking apart, I believe you have a teaser for a video that we'll be playing out seven minutes of in extra time, 
this is the director of the US Centers for Disease Control, so the absolute apex of the medical establishment as regards the pushing of masks, social distancing, vaccination, and a lot. Uh, here he is looking at a recent Fox News interview uh, with um, Dr. Walensky and uh, actually realizing how many layers of, of, of why questions she didn't ask. And his point is a three-year-old would do better by asking the whys and the wherefores behind the first level answers. So let's have a look at this clip. Yeah, well, I'll just I'll just say, Alex, that uh, this is just a short excerpt from this. And, and we chose one that was discussing uh, schools in the United States just because we've been talking about education here. So, uh, yes, let's have a listen to this. But to just press on this issue, given your CDC guidelines, if you have proper mitigation in place, is there any reason why a public school district needs to shut down for the better part of a year? So why did they shut down in the first place? What are they trying to mitigate? Kids dying? Teachers dying? So in, um, we need to make sure that the, the K-5 to schools and the density is down and... So really, that that graph, that graphic there, Alex, just showing that there was no need to shut down schools at all because it's not about uh, risk to children, as we've been making this point uh, for quite some time. Particularly the under twelves, who, if I my knowledge is still current, in most jurisdictions are being advised uh, as as too young to be vaccinated. That's what K to five means. It's the first five years of American grade school or primary school, so the elevens and under. And uh, she is flailing around a bit there. And John Cullen's particular forte, to, together with a few in a similar network or frame of mind, is that he looks at the data um, as a bit like the UK con, really, uh, the data that's publicly presented by the statisticians and tries to look at it at source instead of just contenting himself with the uh, the landing pages of these statistical bodies downloading the real data and crunching it in ways that we're not supposed to see such as the vanishingly small sliver of children who are covid cases um, and as you say alex uh, under 12s aren't supposed to be getting vaccinated but as we reported i think on monday's program uh, in the uk they are just about to run uh, clinical trials uh, on uh, under 12s this year and then later in the year under fives. So there's clearly an intention to go in that direction. Um, where does that take us? Uh, I think that uh, takes us into uh, ads. Oh no, it doesn't. We've got, well, uh, we've Matt got this one here. still to go. Yes. Okay. Uh, so Matt Hancock acted unlawfully by uh, failing to publish COVID contracts. Oh, that's, that's Alex's. The reason, Mike, why this is interesting is that it is actually Labour and Liberal Democrat politicians, in fact, ones that we would normally have very little sympathy with um, uh, because they're quite out on the social justice wings of their parties, uh, who insisted that uh, an interested group of campaigners got their case into court to plead that the Secretary of State for Health had broken the law. Uh, by not uh, fulfilling transparency requirements. All public uh, contracts over the value of £10,000 are supposed to be published, and he didn't do so, uh, Mr Hancock didn't. And when this went up before Mr Justice Chamberlain, uh, Chamberlain said, well, uh, this is an excuse, but it's not a justification. You have actually acted unlawfully. So there's some hope there. Um, will there be a prosecution? That's the question. Uh, now, if you like uh, what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community uh, and you can join us there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, and uh, also, please uh, share our material as you find it on the various uh, on the various platforms. We now are also on Odyssey, uh, as well as BitChute, YouTube, Facebook and Twitter, of course. Yeah. Um, what's the latest on 
Well, the next is uh, an update on Lynn Thayer and uh, David Noakes uh, on screen now. Um, I'm delighted to say I was able to speak directly to Lynn yesterday. She was in Paris. She's obviously recently been re released on bail from prison. Uh, and she's now got to wait till the 22nd of March for the court case in France relating to GC Math and essentially her work with David Noakes to try and help people with cancer. Um, she's clearly had an extremely um, tough time in prison. Um, that particular prison, uh, one of the most brutal in France. Uh, she says she coped with it as, as best she could, but she certainly needs some fresh air and some proper food now. Um, and she's got a good support team around her. So she's... Uh, in about as good a place as she could be at the moment, but I'll do a little bit in a minute on fundraising. Uh, but I want to add that uh, Lynn was able to see David Noakes at the court case that took place about a month ago. Uh, that court hearing gave Lynn bail, but uh, David Noakes was held still uh, held in prison. And uh, Lynn was very concerned for David. She wasn't able to speak to him. But looking at him, she said that he looked particularly gaunt, had lost a lot of weight, and uh, she knew that he'd be finding his time in prison extremely hard. Um, so if uh, people are watching the UK column, they don't understand the background to this case. This is two individuals trying to work to help people with cancer, uh, looking at uh, treatment options that uh, the big pharmaceutical companies and indeed the British government don't want to look at, even when there were positive re uh, results with individuals. So um, they are still in dire straits. I'll just add, uh, if we can pop the picture back on mm -hmm. screen, I'll do the uh, fundraiser, but I just wanted to say many people also asking us about Ian Crane. Now, Ian Crane is, is, uh, is, uh, not directly involved with the court case, but uh, he has been supporting Lynn and David Noakes. Many people asking about Ian, and I have to say that he is very poorly indeed at the moment, and we're waiting for some uh, updates on him, which we will get in due course from the family. So this is the fundraiser that was only passed to us yesterday. Um, you can find it on gofundme.com. Uh, that was the uh, total that had been raised of a target of 35,000. This is to help pay for the legal support for Lynn and if there's sufficient funds for David Noakes as well. Um, on that page, there is an embedded video clip which uh, shows what actually happened um, when David spoke out about their work at a public event. So if you're not sure of the background, you can catch up there. And hopefully, if you think this uh, case is worthwhile, you can make a donation. Back uh, to Shwadiwadi. Well, we've got to come back to Shwadiwadi because, of course, uh, this is just so vital for the BBC. And I just wanted to show people how much uh, the BBC had pushed out on this. Obviously, we can see the quality of the photos. But if we just scroll through the article as it appeared... Um, it's all to do with the pop scene. So it's very heavy on the pop scene and there's nothing of substance about vaccine or adverse vaccine effects, dangers of vaccines. It's simply an article promoting the pop scene and telling us that we're going to get vaccinated. Now, this is what uh, 
uh, the man had to say, Dave Bartram. He, he had, apparently he's had COVID-19 and his wife has had it. They've both recovered, um, but he said it bears no relation to flu whatsoever. It's the most brutal virus I've ever experienced. That statement, uh, I'd, I'd like to know whether he's ever had flu before, because of course people can die of ordinary flu, uh, has he had flu before? Can he qualify that statement that he's made? I don't know. We'll take it, we'll take it as is. He says, if you are sceptical, think of others. We want to get back to normality. We want to cuddle people we haven't cuddled for months on end. So the dig at anybody who's got concerns about the dangers of vaccines, and of course we can't make an informed uh, opinion on a vaccination because we're not being given uh, the adverse effects. Uh, he went on to say, we want to go to football matches, to rock concerts, to festivals, to the pub, to restaurants. And the only way to do this is by vaccination. That's quite a statement. That's now pushed out as if this is a factual statement by the BBC. Uh, if you get into the article, you will find it does get a little bit deeper because it's based on a tweet. And uh, there's an embedded text here which says that Dave Bartram, former lead singer of Shawadi Wadi, had first-hand experience of COVID, something he doesn't ever want again. Excuse me. <clears throat> now he's urging everyone to get their vaccination when invited to protect themselves and others. Thanks for your message, Dave, and best wishes. Let's beat COVID LLR pick twitter.com and this has come from leicester city clinical commissioning group so we've got this blend of it's not fact this is just hype around a pop star is now turned into fact by the leicester city clinical commissioning group and uh, if you want to see the tweet where uh, dave bartram spoke out on video clip it's here um, so it's got eight comments and it's been retweeted a huge 24 times, but it gets massive, massive coverage on a BBC article. Now, in the article was something much more uh, important, and I'm going to use the word sinister. This was the headline, COVID-19, summer school for some pupils in England and Ireland extends restrictions. Here are five things you need to know about the coronavirus pandemic this Wednesday morning. We'll have another update for you this evening. So Shawadi Wadi was part of that. But uh, if we have a look at this video clip, this was also something the BBC said, said we needed to know about. It's on his birthday in March. I'd taken cakes up for the staff for his birthday and we all sung happy birthday. And then four days later, lockdown came. And I hadn't held his hand from the 20th of March until he died on the 19th of December. I could see that it was me he needed to be there with him, to help him. Some days he wouldn't eat. Some days he wouldn't drink. Some days he wouldn't take his medication. And I knew if I was only been allowed in full PPE, whatever they, their wishes would have been, I could have helped my husband an awful lot. But uh, nobody could sanction that. I still can't see, really get my head around the fact that I missed ten and a half months of his life when he needed me the most. And uh, it'll always make me feel um, particularly sad and almost angry. 
I know there's no fingers I can point at, none at all, because of COVID. But I do feel that there, are, there should be more compassion attached to individual cases, not a blanket thrown over the whole of the care system. So I honestly would want the government to consider key, a key worker, one member of the family, to be classed as a key worker, wear whatever they have to wear, but at least it would give the resident and the family member some hope for the future. This last year almost has been the hardest year of my life. It really, really has, because I lost all control over the one man I really loved and wanted to look after and wanted desperately to help, but was unable to. Now, I hope our audience uh, watched that carefully and listened carefully. And I'm going to say straight away that our feelings go out for that uh, poor lady uh, because what she's experienced, many people have been experiencing, many people have lost, lost relatives who they couldn't see in care homes. And I've said before that I have personal experience of this issue. So uh, our feelings are very much for the lady, but what we w wish to point out to our audience is the callous means by which the BBC has used this as an emotional blackmail effectively to implement the policy that's operating now if we pick up some of the things that the lady said she won't have realized what she was saying because she's talking from a very emotional position but of course one of the things she said is no one is to blame and this cannot be true because this is uh, the result her experience the risk the experience of other people in care homes or relatives not able to see their relatives in care homes is not the result of covid it's the result of decisions that have been made by people within government uh, she also suggests that we need to make family key workers and if you follow that line of thought through that is the state saying unless you can be classified as required by the state we, the state, will not allow you to visit your relatives, whether they are well or dying. Mm -hmm. Think of the implications of what this lady is saying. And she's, she's saying, well, basically, um, we, we, we've got a blanket coming over the care system. Well, that she's absolutely right, because what you've now got is the state imprisoning elderly people preventing them having contact with their relatives, even when they are at the point of dying. And the message from the BBC, cynically, is by using this emotional story from this lady that we should be agreeing to the lockdown of our elderly relatives in care homes. We should be agreeing to the fact that we can't visit them unless the state has given us a key worker statement. And of course, from your information earlier in the news, Mike, we know that what will come is that you cannot visit a relative unless you've certainly been tested, but I think until you've got a vaccine passport. So the state is now going to take control of some of the most vulnerable people in society. And we know that the British state is now vaccinating many of those elderly people. And we're seeing the, the rapid rise in death rates amongst these individuals. I'm sorry to do it in one way, uh, Alex, but I'm not in others. 
If we look at the organised killing of elderly people in care homes and relatives being kept away, this is a modern version of the Nazi T4 programme. There's no question that this is going on. Well, of course, Brian, as you've said, on the uh, Tiergartenstrasse, that was the first clinic where the uh, project was put into operation. There was no need for a great deal of violence and often doctors didn't need to come into the room to exterminate people uh, because nurses and what we would now call care workers had had it drummed into them that they were doing a mercy. And uh, that's why I think I uh, would agree with uh, one of our comments in the chat box just now saying that Lynn Parker, the lady who's just emotionally spoken about having been able to do nothing for her husband in nearly a year of his demise, Lynn Parker has been wickedly misled. Misled for certain, as you eloquently pointed out, and wickedly because, of course, the result is that people will die uh, with a lot more suffering and potentially a lot sooner than they would otherwise. You know, uh, uh, the idea that there's no fingers to point at, as Lynn Parker says, nobody to blame, as you summarised it, is entirely misheaded, uh, wrongheaded. And that hasn't come into Lynn Parker's own mind. That has come into her mind through the mean of uh, because of Covid. Mm. What is COVID? Is, is it a bouncer standing at the door saying you're not coming in today? Yeah. Well, how can I sum this up? The best way I thought to do it was just to put these two um, elements uh, side by side. So we've, we've got Shawadi Wadi, the favourite of the BBC. And what is the message of the... Uh, this is number three of the five things that you must know, according to the BBC. Well, his message, uh, without any factual background information or warning, is get vaccinated. And then we've, we've got the distress in the care homes. And the message is that the state will say when you can be with a dying relative. Um, some people in the chat box today are saying that this is cruel, this is evil. Uh, it's all of those things, and it's going to take a great many people in UK to stand up for these vulnerable people. Uh, because, of course, after the elderly people are going to come the children or others who are deemed to be vulnerable, which is why we've seen government document to, documents to date talking about do not resuscitate. Uh, for people who've got learning disability. So if you haven't investigated the T4 programme, I suggest that you research and consider what the British government is uh, pushing into the public domain in 2021. So who are the BBC team doing this? I've called them the Shawadiwadi propaganda team, it seems fitting, uh, but uh, our are people aware of these pay packets? So here's the boss now, Tim Davey, £525,000. Apparently that's been reduced to a mere £450,000 until September 2021. I, uh, well, I wonder whether this is because they're waiting to see whether he's performed well uh, to get the propaganda out. And if he has, he'll get a bonus, which will bring him up to £525,000. Um, obscene amounts of money. Uh, Charlotte Moore, the chief content officer. So I think we could say that where did the shawadi wadi nonsense come from? On whose desk does this nonsense land? Well, I believe it's Charlotte Moore. She's being paid a mere £370,000 a year. Uh, we've got Keris Bright, custom chief customer officer. 
Um, this is the lady that's supposed to keep us all smooth. She's supposed to make sure that the customers of the BBC are happy uh, so the BBC can continue to rake in the money and uh, complaints are brushed off to one side. A mere £360,000, probably with hair, she needs that for the hairdresser. Fat cat pay, £340,000. Uh, here for the Fra Francesca Unsworth, the Director of News and Current Affair. Well, if you look at the BBC website, there is no real news on it, but she can pick up £340,000. Uh, here's Bob Sherman, the Managing Director. He's on a mere 303000 And one of the lesser mortals, uh, Guatam uh, Ranjgarajan, he's on a mere 181000 as Group Director of Strategy and Performance. And if you wonder what that involves, it's looking into the future as to how the BBC is going to become even more creative in putting out its programming. Um, this is to do uh, with the breakup of nations because the BBC's now got a Director of Nations. Uh, his salary varies apparently between £190,000 a year and £194,999. Um, so uh, uh, what can you do about this? We're going to say you need to speak to the BBC. Don't waste time going through the complaints um, organisation because that inevitably is a dead end. Um, you can look out for this. This is a box on that article that we've talked about with Shwadi Wadi, where you can put in your thoughts or ask for clarification on issues to do with COVID. Uh, but we're going to help you by putting out some of the direct contact numbers for people within the BBC so that you can pick the phone up. If you do this, the more polite, the more reasonable, the more accurate you are, uh, the greater effect of your phone call. So there's a few names if you feel you'd like to speak with the BBC Direct. Um, okay, uh, extremism. Let's have a look at this. This is a new report. Uh, this is from the Commission for Countering Extremism. It's been written by Sarah Khan and Sir Mark Rowley, and they've published their findings from their legal review examining the adequacy of existing legislation in relation to hateful extremism. This is what they're describing it as, hateful extremism. Um, so uh, Sarah Khan uh, appointed Sir Mark to lead this review in July 2020. Uh, and the report is called Operating with Impunity, Hateful Extremism. Uh, the need for a legal framework demonstrates how many hateful extremists are able to operate lawfully. This is due to the lack of legislation designed to capture this specific activity, hateful extremism. So first thing that struck me was, well, what's the definition of hateful extremism? So let's have a look at that. Uh, it's an activity or materials directed at an outgroup who are perceived as a threat to an in-group motivated by or intending to advance a political, religious or racial supremacist ideology. Uh, and they say that would be to create a climate conducive to hate crime, terrorism or other violence, or B, uh, attempt to erode or destroy the fundamental rights and freedoms of our democratic society. So that's how they define hateful extremism. But is that really the definition, because the implication there is that we're talking about, you know, uh, racist uh, motivated hit crimes and so on. Uh, but is that really what they're aiming for? Well, let's have a look. They give some examples of how this might, what this might mean. 
And here's the third one. I'm going to give the third one first uh, because the example, this example says stirring up hatred or inciting, inspiring, encouraging, glorifying or justifying violence against a group of people identified as an outgroup who are perceived as a threat to the well-being, success or survival of an in-group. So this is again suggesting some kind of, for example, race or religion or some other uh, type of hatred along those lines. But then we get a little bit more vague in the first two examples. So disseminating ideology, ideological extremist propaganda and disinformation, materials, symbols and narratives, both offline and online. This could include, this can include uh, glorification of terrorism and terrorists. Uh, and they also give another example, attempts to radicalize, indoctrinate or recruit others such as young or vulnerable people to extremist ideologies. Okay, so there's a bit of scope in this for broadening what appears on the surface at least to be uh, about things like race and religion and, and sexuality and perhaps and things like this. But it could be broader than that, as we'll see in a second. But first of all, uh, here is uh, Ms. Khan, Sarah Khan, uh, from the Commission for Countering Extremism. And she says, extremist groups, whether neo-fascist, neo-Nazi, Islamist or others, are able to operate lawfully, freedom, freely and with impunity. Uh, she says they are actively radicalizing others and are openly propagating for the erosion of our fundamental democratic rights. Uh, their aim is to subvert our democracy. This is a threat to our civilized democratic order and requires a robust, necessary and proportionate legal response. So why am I asking, is this focused on what we might previously have understood hate crime to be, which might be things like race-based or religion-based or sexuality or gender-based, these kinds of things. Uh, because of course, the mainstream press is priming us for something much broader than that. Here's to have a, let's have a look at some headlines uh, as an example. So here's from the Los Angeles Times. Anti-vaccine and alt-right groups team up to stoke fears of COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, here's one from Mother Jones. The anti-vax movement's radical shift from crunchy granola purists to far-right crusaders. Uh, here is uh, uh, Vice. Far-right anti-vaxxers are targeting the German co-developer of the COVID vaccine. And here is the Birmingham Live. Far-right groups spreading anti-COVID vaccine propaganda. And so, Alex, I'm very interested in your thoughts on this because it's absolutely clear to me that... Uh, uh, this is similar in some respects to the online harms uh, legislation where they, they or the, the online harms uh, uh, white paper where they sort of cussed in language of of protecting children online and this kind of thing. But there was this underlying uh, basis of countering disinformation and, and really it was a censorship agenda. This very much looks to me to be the same kind of thing where they're trying to uh, bring in language of far right and, and extremist and this kind of thing, but really what it's about is countering uh, what they describe as disinformation. It put me in mind, Mike, of the classic 1990s show about Ireland, Father Ted. If you'll recall, at some point, the bishop said that the uh, priests in his diocese had to go out and mount a token protest uh, against immorality. And of course, what was on the sign that they stood with outside this, the cinema down with this sort of thing. 
So that's what Commissar Khan has done. And yes, she is a commissar. It's just that in the English speaking world, we like to dress that word up as commissioner. And if you are a commissar or commissioner, that means the executive has given you Judge Dread-like powers. You're, a, you're an executive officer masquerading as an officer of the law. That's what a commission and a commissioner is. You, you bear a commission from the crown. Uh, so she's saying we're shocked by these examples. Now, of course, the next stage, whenever Britain sets up a commission, as it has done over various equality issues in the past, is that there will be uh, a period of fact-finding during which the civil servants and hangers-on, uh, the special advisers, will suddenly discover, in inverted commas, that there are equally odious, noxious people around, people like UK Column. And then the drafting of the remit for the uh, commission powers going forward into some per semi-permanent arm of government uh, will be to take action against anyone who fulfills a certain vague wording. I mean, the, the powers here are almost as good as what the BBC has given as a title to Rodri Talvan uh, Edwards or Davis, wasn't it, in the last segment, Director of Nations. I mean, there's an Old Testament prophetic title, if ever I had one. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, now let's uh, move on to international issues. And uh, we're going to start off this little segment with uh, a statement by Sergei Lavrov. Alex? Of course, foreign ministries, including the US State Department, do have a habit of including the, uh, the full text of interviews with the foreign minister or secretary of state on their website. But it does speak volumes that the Russian MFA has put in several European languages, as well as in the original Russian, the full text of an interview uh, with BBC media in uh, Moscow. And uh, here's the killer quote, really. Lavrov is uh, saying, when the foreign ministers of EU member states visit us, they all have to read a couple of pages out first. Lines approved by, and in the original Russian, he says the obkom in Brussels, and they dare not depart from the script. Obkom is short for oblast committee. And when I saw the, the English version first, I thought, ah, he's talking about partkom, the party committee. So those, these are the people of the CPSU, the party, who told the arms of government, including the diplomats, what to say when meeting Johnny Foreigner. But no, I go to the Russian original, and he's talking about the Brussels obkom, so he's not even paying the EU the backhanded compliment, as Gorbachev once did, of saying the EU is the revived Soviet Union. No, he's saying that Brussels itself is but an oblast, an administrative subdivision of what? He leaves it uncertain. But the point is, the model is there. Um, and, and former Soviet republics have had the same, by the way, particularly the underbelly ones, the, uh, the Turkic republics. Uh, when their foreign ministers go abroad or their underlings, they have to clear their throat first and nervously rattle off a page of, we denounce the following. And of course, the interlocutor listens passively and then says, thank you, dear boy. Now let's get down to business. What's item one, please? So that is now being done uh, the other way round. Lavrov is saying he has lost all patience and understanding with the EU. He doesn't regard them as a bloc anymore. He says Brexit's finished off their unity. And towards the end, he gives us a bit of a shocker as well when he says that uh, Josep Borrell, who is the successor of Federica Mogherini, and by the way, another communist in that role, uh, Mogherini has given way to Borrell. Uh, when Borrell went to Moscow uh, recently, um, he, uh, Lavrov said, what did you think of my uh, top-notch uh, Russian Middle East uh, analysts, uh, experts uh, briefing or, or kind of tour of the horizon of, uh, of what's going on in the Middle East, to which Borrell replied, what briefing? So uh, he, he's telegraphing that he's had it, really. He doesn't regard the EU as a player at all. Russia would much rather deal with the individual member states. And he also tellingly says that uh, the parity that there used to be between Russian trade with China, with the US and the EU, is now very lopsided because the EU and the US have sanctioned Russia and Russia has rerouted its trade eastwards. 
Um, I think it's very interesting that uh, we just put that one back up uh, just for a second. They dare not depart from the script. Well, what is the script? Uh, the script, I would argue, is what was agreed at the G7 in 2018, uh, the rapid response mechanism uh, where a script is decided, a common narrative uh, uh, between various states, uh, not just EU commission level, but actually uh, G7 member states. Uh, they agreed to a common narrative, that they would pursue a common narrative for most issues, and particularly with respect to Russia. Um, so let me just uh, bring this up, because on the 13th of February, another email arrived in the UK column email box from Anonymous. It said, greetings, sirs and madams. Uh, we are Anonymous. We continue our uh, HMG Trojan horse aimed at exposing direct involvement of Her Majesty's government in internal affairs of many countries. We've published the fourth part of our investigation. It contains hundreds of confidential files of the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office and its suppliers on Russia. The files confirm that the UK is conducting a secret global operation aiming to change the regime in Russia. Poisonings of Alexei Navalny and the Skripals followed by Bellingcat investigations were parts of this operation. Uh, UK suppliers in their, bid, uh, in their bids admit that they are behind the recent protests organised through Telegram. Uh, you will find companies, media outlets, journalists, networks of YouTubers, high-ranking military official officers, public officials and more. Um, well, indeed, there were lots of uh, files in the uh, document drop. Um, but of course, this is the fourth one, as they say here. The third one was uh, with respect to Lebanon. Vanessa Bailey covered that a couple of weeks ago on this program. And prior to that, there were document do drops on Syria. Um, but uh, this particular one uh, has been taken apart, and I absolutely recommend everybody reads this article on Consortium News. Uh, it's by Max Blumenthal. It's, uh, the headline is Reuters BBC in covert UK programme to push Western agenda. Max Blumenthal reports on new leaked documents showing the prestigious news outlets participating alongside Intel contractors to affect attitudinal change and weaken Moscow's influence. Now, uh, we're going to go through a little bit of this. Uh, uh, and uh, it quotes Chris Williamson, the former Labour MP, uh, who has been involved in investigating this situation for quite a number of years now. Uh, and he's really the only MP that's been involved in this UK column, one of the only uh, organisations that's been talking about this over the longer period of time. Uh, but anyway, Williamson said, uh, quoted in this article, these revelations show that when MPs were railing about Russia, British agents were using the BBC and Reuters to deploy pre precisely the same tactics that politicians and media commentators we're accusing Russia of doing. And of course, that's something that the UK column, uh, 21st Century Wire, have been uh, absolutely accusing the British government of for several years now. But to quote uh, the Consortium News article, it says, the new leaks illustrate in alarming detail how Reuters and the BBC, two of the largest and most distinguished news organisations in the world, attempted to answer the British Foreign Ministry's call for help in improving its ability to respond and to promote our message across Russia and to counter the Russian government's narrative. Among the FCO's stated goals, according to the director of the CDMD, was to weaken the Russian state's influence uh, on its near neighbours. So before we uh, broaden this out just a little bit, um, Alex, uh, I was interested in your, your thoughts because, you know, it's been absolutely clear that, that the UK government has been uh, attacking Russia uh, for a number of years now, claiming that Russia has been 
pushing disinformation into Ukraine, into the, the Europe, into the UK and into the United States, uh, and that therefore we've got to counter that in some way. But in fact, this looks uh, much more like uh, a, a, a proactive attack on Russia rather than a reactive uh, dealing with something that Russia has been doing. This is moving in for the financial kill, Mike, and uh, this ties in very well with recent FSB counterintelligence footage of a British gentleman, an accredited FCO diplomat named James, named James Ford, who's married to a Swedish woman also serving in Moscow, I believe, and they are both accused of being intelligence officers. But James Ford goes to meet Vladimir Ashurkov in a Russian cafe in footage released, I think, at the very end of January. And Ashurkov says that if you could welly us 10 or 20 million dollars for our campaign, which is all tied in with Navalny, of course, um, to overthrow Putin, then this would be a drop in the ocean investment compared with the billions you would get back. And the U there must be what uh, Whitehall often calls UK PLC. So in the way that the US used to do for decades, and I don't think we tended to do to the same extent, we're now seemingly destabilizing Russia uh, with targeted political uh, activities. Uh, and rent a mob opposition in the expectation that if we manage to seize the palace, the next regime will offer plenty of juicy contracts to British-led international consortia. Now, I'm not entirely convinced that James Ford and his Swedish wife are serving intelligence officers. I think that this, the paranoia there could be actually excessive, or rather that the, the telling shift could be that they are straight out diplomats for their respective nations, and that the rot has penetrated so far that ordinary FCDO officials, as we must now call them because developments there as well, ordinary FCDO officials have prostituted themselves or a, a, a section of them of that generation to the idea that their role is uh, not just promoting British business opportunities, but knocking over whatever constitutional government is in the way to promote future British business opportunities in a reconstituted state, a regime change. Uh, yes, and uh, now uh, the, uh, ar the article used the terms Reuters and BBC. Now, of course, uh, when you read down through the actual text of the article, it's not the BBC and Reuters themselves that they're talking about. It's their charitable wings. Um, so in the case of Reuters, it's Thomson Reuters Foundation. In the case of the BBC, it's BBC Media Action. So let's just remember uh, what uh, Juliet Harkin said. Uh, from BBC Media Action with respect to Syria. And this gives us an idea of the type of operations that they've been running here. Um, so they said, she said that we, BBC Media Action, worked in 2004 with individuals within the Syrian ministry who wanted change and tried, them to get, tried to get them to be drivers of that. All media development work has been done in, that has been done in Syria has, in my opinion, been predicated upon this idea that there can be change from within. Uh, you have an authoritarian regime and you find who the reformers are within that and you work with them. Um, so, as I say, Thompson Reuters Foundation, BBC Media Action, charitable arms uh, of those uh, respective media organisations, they claim, their claimed goal is to promote media freedom around the world. Um, and, uh, of course, they train journal local journalists in countries of interest in how to promote a UK and a US narrative. And so I just wanted to add to that, Mike, just to remind people, and please go and check this, look at BBC Media Action's website, go and have a look at their funding page, and you will start to see who all the bodies are pushing the money in, which, of course, includes the British government, but also uh, includes the US government, and it also includes people such as Bill Gates. So the funding pot starts to show where the power base is for control uh, of BBC Media Action for political 
devious political purposes. Um, so it, it's perhaps no surprise if we bring uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe back uh, she, onto screen. She's still, well, she's actually not in prison. She's in house arrest at the moment in Iran, but still, uh, un, you know, still effectively detained in Iran. Uh, and uh, well, why? Uh, if we remind ourselves what Thomson Reuters Foundation said at the time, uh, this is Monique Vila saying, uh, these charges are linked to her work at BBC Media Action and the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Now, she then went on to absolutely deny uh, that, the, that uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was doing anything underhand in, uh, in Iran. Of course, the Iranians uh, convicted her of plotting to topple the Iranian government. That was their words. Uh, but the Thomson Reuters Foundation always denied that. But yet these documents newly uh, released show the Thomson Reuters Foundation was, is, is actively engaged and funded by the British government to carry out this type of operation in foreign countries. Uh, they deny that it was in Iran, but <laughs> do we take their word for it? I don't know. We've got to remember that at the time, Boris Johnson uh, said, when we look at what Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe was doing, she was simply te teaching people journalism, as I understand it, at the very limit. That was when Boris Johnson was uh, Foreign Secretary. Now, uh, simply teaching journalism, we've demonstrated from what uh, uh, Juliet Harkin said that it's not just as simple as that. Uh, but look, uh, Chris Williamson, uh, then Labour MP, uh, has been on this from the beginning. Now, I think it was the, we can claim as a UK column exclusive, uh, the exposure of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's uh, counter disinformation and media development programme, um, because we, I think, were the first to be talking about this uh, openly. Uh, a, a couple of slight comments in the Express uh, in a couple of months prior to us, but in detail, uh, it was us. But anyway, Chris Williamson then put in some uh, uh, written questions to Parliament. So let's just remember what those were. First of all, to ask the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, pursuant to answer three of December 2018, uh, uh, he was asking about integrity initiative, if the Secretary of State would publish the documents and correspondence on grant agreements for the Integrity Initiative. And of course, Integrity Initiative, if you remember, from late 2018, uh, was also funded through the Foreign Commonwealth Office's uh, Counter Disinformation and Media Development Programme. Uh, and the response that he got from uh, Alan Duncan was no, basically. Uh, so he said that the Counter Disinformation and Media Development Programme is designed to protect national security by by countering disinformation directed at the UK and its allies from Russia, Russia persistently uses disinformation to target its perceived enemies. Uh, an example was the Russian disinformation campaign that followed the attack in Salisbury, which was intended to distract from Russian culpability. Documents and correspondence about projects within the programme will not be published, as this information could then be used to actively attempt to disrupt and undermine the programme's effectiveness. So, Alex, uh, can Alan Duncan now be taken to task for misleading Parliament by writing an answer which these leaked documents absolutely shows to be untrue? I suppose he would probably wriggle off the hook because he would contest that these documents do not have veracity. There's always a problem with admissibility of leaked documents in courts in common law jurisdictions, uh, which you don't often have uh, in other jurisdictions, but because of our higher evidentiary standards, uh, it may be that they would be ruled inadmissible in evidence. That's the, the most uh, likely way he would get off the hook. But of course, the quality of the judiciary being what it is, that's another way he would probably get uh, uh, off the hook there. Uh, it's a you know, rather concerning situation. And let me throw, in, throw into the mix there 
that during that um, surveilled conversation between James Wood of the British Embassy, a second secretary, I think is his overt title, uh, and uh, Vladimir Ashurkov, the Russian oppositionist begging for MI6 or, or foreign office money, Ashurkov says, uh, give us 10 to 20 million and we can turn the tables on Putin. Wood says, uh, that's a big ask, but I can suggest that you try Transparency International. Here, here's where the viewers come in. I wasn't previously aware that Transparency International would disburse funds to uh, heroic anti-corruption oppositionists or whatever their billing is in foreign countries. I do know that they're British based. I do know that they work with the British deep state. But it would be interesting to know whether this rerouting to Transparency International is actually to give a financial comfort blanket to the Russian opposition or whether it's just a, a friendly way of saying, well, try to bang some pots and pans there until they complain more about awful Vlad. Uh, but you can see that that's part of the mix as well alongside the charities. Uh, but of course, now that the documents are out, uh, it might be much easier to get hold of them via freedom of information. Uh, and certainly it would be very interesting to see what kind of response that people get if they if they ask for those documents via freedom of information. But look, uh, just to finish this off, Alan Duncan uh, went on to say this. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office's Russian language program was launched in 2014 following uh, Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. In April 2016, we launched a new four-year strategic communications and media development program authorised by the National Security Council uh, called the Counter Disinfor Disinformation and Media Development Program. So this was uh, authorised by the National Security Council. Um, so just to, this is uh, graphic shows what the national, what this infrastructure looked like at the time. Uh, it looks a little bit different now, but not much. Uh, Mark Sedwell, of course, is no longer uh, in charge of the National Security Council or the Cabinet Office. Uh, but this is really the network uh, that was then, that was there then, still exists mostly. Um, and there's Andy Price in the middle, who of course was uh, uh, in charge of the counter disinformation and media development program, which no, not only funded the integrity initiative, but has also been, as these documents show, uh, funding many more programs uh, in many countries around the world in order to, uh, well, attack Russia, in fact. Yeah, so my, my thought on this is if you see this duplicity by the British government uh, with respect to, we'll call it foreign policy, um, I think it just strengthens the evidence that the same government will be prepared to run a duplicitous policy over uh, COVID-19 and vaccines and our health in this country, I think we're beginning to home in on where this, uh, where this misuse of power is coming from. Um, now, Alex, uh, we're well over time, but we'll, we'll continue for a little bit longer. Uh, what's, been, what's your latest on the Scottish situation? Well, I've already been uh, taking the task in the chat box for stealing David Scott's style with this waistcoat. So now I'm in danger of shooting David Scott's grouse by entering the murky waters of Scottish politics. But so be it. I don't think he'll take it amiss because he did trail on Monday that today would be a big day in Scottish politics. And so it is, despite a blocking vote by the five to four majority of the regime aligned parties, the SNP and the Scottish Greens, Alex Salmon's testimony to the Parliamentary Committee of Inquiry, the Fabiani uh, committee has now come out and I've given it a full reading. People will be able to find it if they go, if you re reverse that slide, if yeah. they go to my channel Alex Thompson Eastern Approaches and look at the playlist. I've set up a Scotland playlist because there's so much dirt coming out of Scotland at the moment. Um, so if we look into that, that's what the, the, uh, the, the titles are. 
the one with the SNP Corrupt logo at the top is the one in question, Utter Corruption of Scottish Public Life. Many thanks to the viewer who normalised the volume for me uh, without even being asked. There's a great, brilliant community spirit around. And uh, I read out Alex Salmon's testimony, which takes me an hour and ten. Um, let me just give you a couple of responses that have come in. Uh, Sue in Normandy says, if this was written as a work of fiction, no one would believe it, although it has an uncanny flavour of Dodson and Fogg. Furthermore, what are the Scottish taxpayers doing about it? They should be demanding resignations. And because so much of the testimony regards Leslie Evans, for which see the UKColumn.org front page, late article by the late Robert Green, Leslie Evans is the chief civil servant in Scotland, soon out on her ear, her ear we expect. Um, Lee Summers says, Leslie Evans is, I'll do as I please to whomever I please, is common behaviour in Scotland. She knows there is no real accountability that could harm her or her like. And uh, more of the same. So let's see what uh, perhaps you would like to read this, Mike or, or Brian. Uh, just two screenshot extracts of the very damning evidence Alex Salmon gives in the first third of his hour of, te of written testimony, or hour to read it out, which concerns Leslie Evans, the, which is basically uh, Nicola Sturgeon's mini-me uh, in the persecution of Mr. Salmon over allegations of sexual impropriety. Uh, well, it says, uh, despite her protestations to the contrary, the Permanent Secretary was chiefly responsible for the pursuit of an unlawful policy which has cost the Scottish people millions of pounds. In her letter of the 21st of June 2018 to Levy and McRae, uh, she describes the policy as established by me. She claimed ownership of it then, but not now. When asked at committee, she said there seems to have come into being a tradition of calling it my procedure. It is not. It is a Scottish Government procedure and one that's been agreed by Cabinet. In fact, this procedure was never even seen by Cabinet or Parliament. Uh, and uh, it, it was established by Ms Evans. It says, uh, in her presentations before the committee, the Permanent Secretary still seems oblivious to the scale of the disaster she has inflicted on all concerned or the enormity of the misjudgment she has made. The view that she uh, should have resigned on the 8th of January 2019 uh, the day that Lord Pentland's interlocutor judged the policy Ms Evans established uh, and the actions taken as unlawful, unfair and tainted by apparent bias, uh, bias is widely shared, not least by cabinet ministers. The damage she's done to the reputation of the civil service is very significant. In my view, any person conscious of the responsibility of holding high office uh, would have resigned long ago. Instead, Ms Evans' contract was extended. Well, there we go then. Uh, we're getting out of this discovery of the hierarchy of corruption. Uh, again, using the ukcolumn.org front page search feature, the magnifying glass, you can look for Scotland's secret shame and find David Scott talking about the role of the Crown Office at the heart of this. Salmond concurs with insider information uh, because what he sets out is that the less corrupt parts of the Scottish establishment are the police, including the uh, current uh, chief constable who was new to post when all this started happening in late 2018, and some of the cabinet ministers and some of the legal people for the SNP, particularly in Westminster, they said, no, no way, Jose. The more corrupt elements are the special advisers uh, hovering around Butte House, the residence of the Scottish First Minister, and the supposedly impartial Crown Office. And particularly, Salmon has a go at the Lord Advocate, because unlike the continental jurisdictions on which Scotland likes to model and pride itself and reflect itself, the Lord Advocate is head of prosecutions for the country, for which he's answerable to Parliament, and he's a cabinet, office, a cabinet minister in the Scottish Government. So there's a pointed question towards the end of Salmon's testimony, where he says that when, once the judicial review route failed to stick any mud on, on Salmon, it looks very much like uh, the cabal in question 
uh, tapped the Lord Advocate on the shoulder in a Scottish government context and said, would you mind awfully leaning on the ladies who were prevailed upon to complain? And would you mind telling them that it would be the worst for them if they didn't uh, allow the, did, if they didn't provide evidence to police Scotland? And through various stages that followed, such as the police, sorry, such as the daily uh, record in Glasgow, getting a tip off, a very lurid, detailed tip off of the allegations against Mr. Salmons to try to sink him under the, the waterline, Police Scotland's chief constable was actually advising Leslie Evans at the time, don't go there, this is unlawful. Courts were pronouncing this ju these judgments unlawful. Uh, or the, the procedures of the Scottish Civil Servants Service. They were clean contrary, as Mr. Salmon outlines in what I've read, also to ordinary workplace uh, practice, such as uh, the uh, avoiding the, the presumption or the appearance of bias uh, or partiality in, in, in considering harassment allegations. All of this goes by the board. And at one point, about a quarter of an hour into the reading, that we even find that the Scottish Civil Service under Leslie Evans uh, asked the Cabinet Office in London uh, what do you think of our plan to retrospectively extend our code of conduct to include former ministers as well as current ones? And they could even be of, of other political administrations. So if for the rest of your life we think you were a naughty boy, we can haul you in even though you've long retired from public life. And the redacted name, but a female at the Cabinet Office in London, apparently wryly said, I see. And are you intending to apply this to former civil servants as well? Hint, you would never get that past the union. It's blatantly unlawful. So it's it's perfectly transparent, I think, what's what's been going on now. And Salmon says he avoids defining it as a conspiracy by the book, by the dictionary definition. But he says it's clear that there was, uh, I think he uses various terms such, not not cabal, but certainly a few a few people at the heart of government using the Crown Office and misusing legislation and codes of conduct that Salmon is uniquely placed to talk about because he himself set them up in the 20, 2007 to 2010 period. And just to close that section off, I would very much recommend that for the British wide context, they look at an interview with this gentleman, Seb, a new channel called Not the BBC, that black and white this kind of Rubik's Cube icon is his channel. And I've appeared on that recently. He's extracted several highlighted bits as well. So if you sort the videos by latest on the Not the BBC channel, you will find that. And the title of the main piece is, um, well, I can't find it on screen now, but uh, the, the overall view uh, that I took in that is what's gone wrong with the British establishment. Well, Scotland, as usual, offers that lesson in miniature because it is so dependent on the idea that roles like Leslie Evans or permanent, uh, I should use the titles, roles like head of the civil service or Lord Advocate are totally dependent on promising to be a good egg and not to willfully abuse the situation you have where you wear two hats and work for two teams. Well, that's mm. entirely shot through now. Indeed. Okay. Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, let's just end with a little bit on um, the saviour of the world. And if you're confused as to who that might be, it's Bill Gates, according to the BBC. And uh, this was at the end of that fine shawaddy waddy advice on vaccinations. And uh, Mike, I really had to pick this one out because I didn't realise that the BBC was now giving Bill Gates um, massive free advertising by a whole series. Uh, episode one, 51 billion to zero, how to avoid a climate disaster by Bill Gates, the same man who's helping to fund the BBC, of course. Um, well, there we are. Watch him carefully. Uh, we'd just like to say thank you very much for the wonderful support we're getting from many people. Uh, we've had some lovely letters and emails, um, people taking out lifetime memberships, which is a, a very big compliment for us and uh, many of those letters coming in from overseas so we're always saying welcome to overseas audience um, please have a look at the um, 
uh, fundraiser for Lynn Thayer and David Noakes, uh, despite uh, the horrible reports in old media. Don't talk about mainstream media, that's the old media. Uh, but they've been very unkind to those two. Um, they're suffering, they're facing further time in court. They need some help in order to pay for the uh, legal advice they need. And somebody in the chat room pointed out that we should be thinking about um, uh, misfeasance and malfeasance in public office, two uh, very useful charges which still exist. Uh, people can look to bring those forward where they see um, officials flouting the law. And lastly, I'd just like to say that things are clearly speeding up. We see it, we feel it, and it's beholden on every one of us to take some action to stop uh, things when we know that what's happening is wrong. So whether you pick up a phone, you take the BBC to task, you write an, uh, a letter to your local MP, or you discuss what's happening with your local policeman, everything you do every day is important and it needs to happen. Last point is uh, we've had a couple of emails, people getting very frust frustrated um, that they don't get a reply after they've emailed us on a particular uh, topic. I just have to say we do our best to cover the huge amount of information that comes into us. And if we're not replying, it's not because we're not interested in what you're saying. Uh, it's not because we don't love you. It's simply that we haven't got the capacity to see it all and deal with it instantly every day. So best thing to do is keep trying put a nice big um, capital letter subject line in your email and hopefully we will pick it up. That's it for today. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back for extra in a Thank few minutes. Thank you, Mike. We'll be back in a few minutes for extra time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.